0: We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, 1 through 6 this morning. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, swine pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we just uh, thank you for your word this morning, and we just ask, Lord, that you would open up our ears and our hearts uh, to your spirit, that you would teach us, and that you would just bring us closer to you through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: I've got the, let's see, elementary kids are released. to tap your kids. Oh, yes, and everyone else may be seated. How are we, family? Good, good. Well, that was exciting. That was a, a first for me, a worship experience with the organ. Holy moly. That was legit, y'all. That was great. Uh, if you're a guest with us, uh, we're glad to have you this morning. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here in Taproot Church. Uh, I get to open up scripture this morning and uh, and preach. We're in uh, as. John red. we're in Matthew chapter 7. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and more specifically, as of late, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is our 40th sermon through the Gospel of Matthew. I assure you, once we hit chapter 8, it will go much, much faster. <laughs> um, but it's been good. As, as we've been working our way through this Gospel, we have been and will continue to learn the way of Jesus. And uh, this morning we hit Matthew chapter 7, uh, and we hit a text that many of us are at least somewhat familiar with, uh, but maybe not as familiar with as we might like to think. And so that's what we get to work through this morning. And I want to just, I'll start with this. The last couple of years in our world have been interesting to say the least. Agreed? Agreed? Yes, can we get an amen? Yes. Quiet amens. We can we can give loud amens. Yeah, I think obviously the reality, right, of navigating life through a global pandemic, that's brought some interest into our world, hasn't it? Right? Things that we that we used to do, things that were normal, we're now no longer sure if we're allowed to do anymore, things such as shake someone's hand. I don't know. Or coughing, right? God forbid we cough, because <laughs> Lord knows that if we cough, it might wreck everything. And that's not to negate the seriousness of the obvious, but at the same time, we're humans, and these are normal things. But the reality is, we're not so sure how to deal with these things anymore. Uh, and then, and then, not only that, but we live in a world that is increasingly polarized. I mean, that's obvious. Every single day we can turn on the news or flip through our streams of news sources and see that there is just uh, this, this push for us to do what feels like take in all of the information that we possibly can, right? How many of us are always just kind of taking in information, and then we feel like we have to pick a side? We have to land somewhere. There's no middle ground. You're either over here or you're over here. And depending on which side you're on, your job then is to demonize the other side. Uh, Yet all the while we live in this weird tension of not judging and loving, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But the interesting thing that I've kind of assessed about our polarized world is that both sides, whichever side you want to land on, and as followers of Jesus, the hope for us is that we would be, we're kingdom citizens, so we're not picking sides, we're learning how to follow Jesus. But the interesting thing, in the, in the cultural narrative at least, is that both sides are offering their version of what they deem to be a flourishing humanity. So we could ask this question, how many of you in here would like to flourish as human beings? Everyone, right? No one's going to say, no, no thank you, I don't want to live a flourishing life. And so, not to be political, but maybe to be a little bit, the right and the left are offering their ideas, they're offering their vision of what they deem to be a flourishing life, a flourishing humanity. But, and so at the end of the day, most people really do want the same thing. The problem is, is that, Both sides go about it the wrong way. And so what we see in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is what is actually a compelling vision for a flourishing humanity. Because the thing about Jesus is he doesn't fit anywhere. This is what was so challenging about the teachings of Jesus and the way that he lived is no one could pin him down. The conservatives were frustrated with Jesus, and the liberals were frustrated with Jesus. And guess what? If we live as followers of Jesus today, the way that Jesus lived and taught, we'll experience the same reality. We shouldn't find ourselves comfortable on either side, so to speak, because the flourishing way of the kingdom is just entirely different. It's not something that can be easily pinned down. It's unlike anything that we could ever come up with on our own. So, for example, if we just do a quick review here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with these blessings, these beatitudes. We've called it flourishing because flourishing is a a good word. Another uh, good word that would describe it is happy. And so Jesus teaches us things like uh, blessed or flourishing or happy are now, if we were to try to fill in the blank on our own, what would we come up with? Well, n- nothing that Jesus comes up with. Because Jesus' is teaching is, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Or flourishing are those who mourn. Right? Try to, try to fit that one together. How many of you ever have ever just had that thought like, yes, happy are those who mourn? We, we don't know how to put those together. Or flourishing are the meek, the humble, the lowly. That's certainly not how we teach in our world to be happy. <laughs> flourishing or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Flourishing are the merciful. Flourishing are the pure in heart. Flourishing are the peacemakers. Flourishing are those who are persecuted. Ha- Just put it like this. Happy are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. (laughs) Blessed are you when others revile you. We don't have categories for this. And yet this is Jesus' vision of true blessedness or true flourishing. It's entirely upside down. Jesus goes on and he teaches us then that Uh, Obedience to God is not merely something that's outward, like an outward display of religion and moral values, but it's actually an inward transformation of the heart. And so Jesus goes deep, and he teaches us things that not only should you not murder someone, but actually, if you've been angry with someone, you've murdered them in your heart. We get into the, the sexual ethic of Jesus, which was and is high. (laughs) For Jesus, it's not merely an issue of adultery, it's an issue of lust. Gets to the heart. Jesus raises the bar, so to speak, on his teaching of marriage and divorce, anger, retaliation, loving your enemies, so on and so forth. He challenges the inward motivation I think it was, um, I think it was David Benner who said, in Christianity, motivation is everything. And this is what the teaching of Jesus gets at. And then we've been working our way through Matthew chapter 6, of course, where I think essentially what we see is that security comes not through holding onto and possessing much, but the complete opposite. That security in the kingdom actually comes through giving away and letting go of that which we thought actually made us secure. That security is entrusting your entire life to the Father who knows what we need before we ask him. So just as we summarize Matthew 5 and 6, I hope that we can all come to the conclusion that none of that is easy. And this, and this is the tension for us, is that Jesus actually expects us to obey these teachings. He, he actually expects us to live this life. This is what we'll see in particular at the end of Matthew 7. But it's, it's not easy. And none of us can, can be here this morning and say, oh, yeah, I got that all figured out. Cool. Or, or probably even feel like we're well on our way. If we were to assess our hearts, we would all agree that we have a long ways to go. Recognize that Jesus' words on judgment come on the heels of Matthew 5 and 6. You see, Jesus is a wise teacher, and Jesus understands that the process of discipleship or the process of apprenticeship to him is just that it is a process. See, as we, could, as we look across this room, there isn't one standard person in this room. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the way. It's not one of us. It's not, it's not like, oh, here's the, the, uh, the example of the, the perfect spiritual life here in Taproot Church. We can't point to any of us and say that that's what it is. It's, it is Jesus. And so it's no coincidence then that Jesus now has to teach us how to interact with one another, how to be patient with one another, how to bear with one another in this life of learning how to follow him. And so it's in light of that that he now teaches us how to judge or not to judge. And so what we really see here in Matthew, particularly in Matthew 7, 1 through 12, is that we're learning how to love our neighbor. We're we're learning how to enter into the process of seeing people as image bearers of God. Entering into the process of being patient with and bearing with one another. Part of me has been really excited to teach this particular text. Part of me has been really overwhelmed to teach this particular text. And I'll be honest, where I land this morning is more overwhelmed. I think I read too much this last week. (laughs) and My mental capacity feels limited. So I'm going to try to make as much sense of this as I possibly can. So I'm going to start out with this question in regards to Jesus' teaching. Is he teaching us to judge or not to judge? Any takers? All right. Judge not, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. It's interesting. I think the majority of humanity knows very little about Jesus. Even in in the church, I I think we should know more about Jesus than what many of us probably do. But just by and large, I think the majority of humanity knows very little about Jesus except this verse. Everyone seems to know this verse. So let's just ask, how many of you have used this verse? How many of you have had this verse used against you? Yeah, that's a, that's a common ground for us. We have all either used this or had it used against us. Everyone seems to know this line. But there are few statements made by Jesus that have been more misused and abused than this one. To not judge, or another way that our world likes to put it is to be loving. So here's how it works out. You, um, how many of you have felt that you have the freedom to criticize something in someone else's life recently? With the exception of Pastor John. <laughs> or, or, or how many of you, you know this, that you know that if you go into make a critique or a correction or a judgment, you know that it's likely to not be received very well. That, that's, that's not, it's not something where we kind of can process and think, oh, I've, I've, I've recognized this thing in this particular person's life, and I want to talk to them about it, and I'm sure that they're going to receive it beautifully. And they're going to say, oh, thank you. I'm so glad you noticed this particular thing and chose to pinpoint it and uh, expose me for who I really am. Love it. It doesn't work that way. And so what our culture, world around us wants to to say, we need to love people and not judge. Which, in essence, just means this. Don't disagree with anyone and their decisions and choices. Like, we we live in this... uh, false world where we believe that we are our own autonomous selves and all that we do, say, or think has no impact on anyone else around us. And so who are you? Who are you to judge what anyone else may say or not say or do or not do? The challenge is this, is, well, Jesus. See, Jesus, interestingly enough, disagreed with people a lot, Jesus was far from just an agreeable guy. We love to emphasize the the meekness and the gentleness and the lowliness of Jesus, but to the ignorance of his passion and anger and willingness to confront a broken world. See, Jesus disagreed a lot. And he did so in love. And so, if you read the Gospels, you will certainly see this reality. And you'll also see that Jesus makes judgments, and in fact, he teaches us to do so ourselves. Here's just one example. A few verses later here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus would say this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. That's an inherent judgment that has to be made. So only a few verses after Jesus says, don't judge, he's saying, you're going to have to judge a little bit. See the dilemma? So, yes, Jesus' first statement here is don't judge, but let's be good students of Scripture. Let's be good learners, good followers of Jesus. It's only one line. And the line isn't don't judge, full stop, let's move on. No. No. Jesus, his full teaching here is actually more along the lines of don't judge in the way that you're used to judging and being judged. Jesus is teaching us what the flourishing life looks like as his followers, and he's teaching us that we indeed are going to make judgments. We are going to have to make judgments as followers of Jesus, and he is teaching us how to do so correctly. So Jesus' actual teaching here isn't don't judge, but more how to judge properly. So then, according to the teachings of Jesus, what should judgment look like? Uh, We'll spend the rest of our time trying to work this out, and we're going to see this. First and foremost, number one, judgment is rooted in mercy. Uh, Number two, we'll see that judgment is practiced through self-examination and awareness first. And then number three, judgment is practiced with wisdom. So that's our our trajectory for the rest of this morning. Number one, judgment is rooted in mercy. So let's read the text again here. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, that was judgmental, Jesus. Man. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We'll stop there. So it's not, it's not explicit in the text. We can, what we have to do here is we have to, we have to think of the broader story of Scripture. Right? But I think what Jesus is doing is he's rooting his teaching of judgment in mercy. He, he, he's, he's challenging us and he wants us to think about the ways in which we go about judgment. And he does so by warning us. And his warning is, is, is this, it's, it's judge not lest you be judged, and it's then be careful how you do judge, right? So as soon as he, be, as, as soon as he finishes saying to judge not, he then goes into how the judgment actually works itself out. And he's saying, basically, if you're going to pronounce judgment on people, be prepared to receive it back, not only from people, but also from God, So he wants us to understand then that there's a bigger picture here. And here's how I, I, I thought we could work this out. There is this interesting and pervasive idea uh, that the Bible is presenting as two different stories of God, something that we're all familiar with, right? So here's how it works itself out. The Old Testament God is what? Mean. Yeah, he's mean and he's archaic, grumpy, old-fashioned, patriarchal, angry, I don't know how anyone could put up with that Old Testament God. And then, you, and then you get to the New Testament, and how's the New Testament God? Gentle, kind. And so most of us were like, I don't like to read the Old Testament. That makes me uncomfortable. I'd much rather read the New Testament because Jesus is just really good at making me comfortable. Which, again, if that's the case, then we need to reread Jesus. Yeah, so there's this this kind of idea, this picture of of the Old Testament God and the New Testament God and Jesus as being gentle, lowly, meek, mild. But let's just face it, these are horrible caricatures. Horrible. And and here's how. Does anyone know how God is most described by the people of God in the Hebrew Bible? let Let me reword it. The people of God, Israel... Were the people who interacted most with Yahweh. So think through this story of a people who are uh, chosen for no other reason than just God chose them. They they weren't amazing, they weren't beautiful, they weren't like this large, incredible society that God was like, man, I'm gonna get a lot of work done through them. They were an absolute wreck. And, and then the, the, the repeated story that we see is, is that they just kind of continue to mess things up. And that's just putting it lightly. And, and then yes, you're absolutely right. As we would work through the Old Testament, we would absolutely see anger. We see wrath. We see frustration, all of that. But how does Israel most commonly refer to Yahweh. I hear lots of whispers. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, steadfast. Gosh, you guys nailed it. Yeah, listen to this. Exodus 34, Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7 says this. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, here's, here's what's interesting about that text. I think our tendency is to get stuck on the latter half of verse seven. We hear that and we're like, oh, see, God, angry. He doesn't like sin. Yeah, we know, like, yes. But what's interesting is that over and over and over and over again, this, this is a repeated text throughout the Hebrew Bible. Actually, it's the most quoted verse in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I think I have a list. Can you put that list up there, Tracy? Just, and this is just This is just a small list of where you'll find this verse quoted in the Hebrew Bible. And you know what part of it is most frequently quoted? The first part. You see, what what Israel recognized and acknowledged most about God's character is the fact that he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, and here's what's astonishing about this, because then look at verse 8 there. It says this, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The teaching of Jesus to not judge is rooted in this mercy. And this is so, so important for us to understand. The point that's being made is that we are to be merciful just as we have received mercy. Right, that that was Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, Verse five, Jesus said, blessed, or, uh, sorry, is that right? No, seven, Matthew five, verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Right? See, in Christ, we don't get what we deserve. Because what we deserve as disobedient Rebellious humanity against God is his judgment. And yet here we are breathing. It is is by the mercy and grace of Jesus that we are able to be here this morning. We are not getting what we deserve. That is mercy. Mercy. And so Jesus roots this, this practice, this teaching of being non judgmental in this reality. Right? When we understand that we have received mercy, it's hard to not be merciful. Right? So the apprenticeship to Jesus process looks different for all of us. The intent is for us to be merciful in that. So let's try to continue to to work this out a bit with point number two. So judgment is rooted in mercy. Number two, judgment is practiced through self-examination and awareness first. So verse three again. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, just in case we're unaware. Jesus is using, this is figurative language. (laughs) This is uh, hyperbole. (laughs) Jesus is is making a point, and he's giving us an object illustration in how to understand this thing. So, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first... First, notice there's a a first in the process. So so first, do this, and then you can do this, is what Jesus is teaching us. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So let's just make sure we're all on the same page. Do we agree that Jesus is not just flat out saying, don't judge? No, I'm going to need more than that. Yes, okay, we're in agreement. Jesus is then teaching us what this process should look like, and he's saying it's practiced through self examination and awareness first. So, in the text, really, what we have is two problems. Jesus isn't saying that one thing is worse than the other. Whether you have a log in your eye or a speck of dirt in your eye, guess what? They're both uncomfortable. They're both uncomfortable. They're both not supposed to be there. They're both not helpful. More specifically, one, uh, both hurt. They both prohibit vision. Thus, both need to be removed. Jesus isn't saying, like, we can leave one log or splinter in someone else's eye while the other one remains there. That's, both need to be removed. Right? So Jesus then is teaching here the need for a wise gospel community where we are able to speak into one another's lives. This is is how we are to participate as members of the kingdom of God, as participants, as followers of Jesus together, is that we are actually intended to speak life into one another's lives. That will often entail some form of critique, some form of what would maybe be received as criticism or judgment. So how then does this work? Let's try to work this out, flesh this out a bit more. Romans chapter 2, Paul elaborates on this a little bit. In Romans 2, here's what Paul says, verses 1 through 6. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Notice the similarity between Paul's words and Jesus' words. Paul Paul is teaching what Jesus taught. Verse 2, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So for Paul, what Paul's saying too is the same thing. He's saying we simply need to examine our own lives first. Right? Are we or are we practicing the very thing that we're trying to condemn in others? As a matter of fact, it doesn't even need to be the same thing. Right? Uh, the tendency is for us to perceive ourselves as more righteous than others around us. And so we're quick to to try to look at and assess the lives of other followers of Jesus around us and somehow see ourselves as a little bit better. Or something like that. And Paul's saying, no. Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it's intended to work. Uh, another way to understand this is that um, we, have, we just have a tendency to see ourselves as better than we actually are. Which is, uh, Paul teaches us in Philippians uh, 2, I think it's Philippians yeah, chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. but our proclivity is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. So then the practice for us is to examine ourselves first and be aware of our own issues first. Um, Dallas Willard has a book called The Divine Conspiracy, and I think he is genius on this whole teaching here in Matthew 7, 1 through 6 in particular. So I'm just gonna steal a whole bunch of his stuff uh, and teach it to you guys. Okay, so Willard goes into this, and he and he says it like this. He says to correct another without condemning them requires great spiritual and personal maturity. So let's work on that a little bit. There is a difference between judging or condemning and correcting. We can correct one another. We can speak into one another's lives in a way that is. Constructive and helpful and not judgmental and condemning. So Jesus, he is specifically teaching us how to go about things in that way. To be aware of how we communicate and speak into and correct one another. And what Willard says, which is true because it's biblical, is that it requires great maturity as a follower of Jesus. So here's a text for us, Galatians Chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. What Paul's getting there in Galatians 6, verse 1 is that there is a, a level of maturity that we're to have before we try to jump in and correct a brother or sister who has been caught in any transgression. And then Paul associates this as well with a warning. So he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, right? And then he goes on, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. This is the process in which Jesus is communicating to us. So in other words, Just being a Christian or just being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you automatically get to go around correcting others. Right? Darn it. (laughs) Instead, there needs to be maturity and humility or you run the risk of just being condemning. So I can think of an example of this in in my own life. There's a series of interactions I had with a brother, oh, a year, a year and a half ago. And it was interesting, his desire was to speak into my life. And so we had this meeting, we were going to meet and talk and so on and so forth. We don't really know each other, hasn't been coming to Taproot for too terribly long. We, 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 we show up at Twin Beans, that's the meeting place of all meeting places, <laughs> amen. amen, and he has a piece of paper. He a, it so he just walks in. I'm sitting at the table drinking my coffee. Walks in, throws the piece of paper down like this, and then just sits down. No, hi. How you doing? How's it going? Anything? I look at the paper. It's a list of like ten or eleven things that I am doing wrong, and that is wrong with Taproot. No, oh, I was mad. <laughs> I was I was so less than gracious. I think I was right, but <laughs> the point is this, is that it was this experience of, of someone who thought themselves to be in a particular position, uh, but what they wound up doing is kind of coming in like a bowl in a china closet, throwing their weight around, thinking that just because I am in this particular season of life, I have all of the, the right uh, in the world to tell you what you're doing wrong. Uh, that's not the case. And this is what Jesus is teaching, because if we, if we don't, if we're not aware of this, we won't be able to correct in what Paul says is a spirit of gentleness, right? So just as another example, how, how does it go for you when you try to correct someone in a spirit other than gentle? Just think of your own, just think of your marriages, if you need help. Wondering. Right? And for those of you who aren't married, just think of your closest relationships. Although maybe in those relationships, you don't have the freedom to correct at all. Right? But, but we all... Or here, here's one. Siblings. Yeah, exactly. Watch, watch your children or watch... Siblings interact with one another. Rarely will you see a correction in gentleness, (laughs) and it almost never goes well. Right? How many times you're sitting and like kids are downstairs and they're like yelling at each other? What is going on? Well, they told me that I didn't. (sighs) And it just never works. So what then should the process look like, okay? Here's, here's Willard again. He, he lists out four things uh, in his, his chapter on this chapter. He says, first, we don't undertake to correct unless we are first absolutely sure of the sin. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes all things, hopes all things. Thus, our, our first Response ought always to be to believe the best. Now just make that assessment in your heart. How quick are you to believe the best in people? I think our proclivity is to believe the worst in people. Yet the way of love, the way of true love as a follower of Jesus is to believe all things and hope all things and thus we assume the best in people that's hard second again not just anyone is to correct others correction is reserved for those who live and work in the words of Dallas Willard in a divine power not their own the point being this are we living a life of being with Jesus Because there's, there's nothing as fun as having someone come and just kind of hammer the Bible over your head who really has no idea what the Bible or is saying. Case in point, this verse. Right? Like, hardly ever has it been used against us or hardly ever have we used it Well. And so there is, a, there is a maturity, there is a, a practice that we need to participate in as followers of Jesus, of, of being with Jesus. It's, it really is interesting. Do you know how much easier life would be for us as a community of Christ followers if we would be practicing following Jesus? Like if, if we would be a people who are committed to being in Scripture, And 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 could agree on that as our baseline for knowledge and truth, right? And then everything else flows from that reality. It would be really helpful. So practicing those things, practicing life in community with one another. So it's not just for anyone to correct others. Third, the correcting to be done is not a matter of straightening them out. It is not a matter of hammering on their wrongness and on what is going to happen to them if they don't change their ways. It is a matter of restoration. And I think this posture changes everything because that tends to be the case. We tend to think, I see something wrong in someone else. I need to correct it. I need to fix it. They need to get it right or else. But the posture of Jesus when it comes to correcting is not a matter of just straightening people out. It's always with the intent of restoration, right? Fourth, and this is key, Willard says, the ones who are restoring others must go about their work with the sure knowledge that they could very well do the same thing that the person caught has done, or even worse, This totally removes any sense of self-righteousness or superiority, which, if it is present, will certainly make restoration impossible. To aid in this direction, the restorers are to endeavor to feel the weight, the burden that the one being restored feels as he or she stands trapped in the sin. In other words, I think one of the most powerful things that we can do when it comes to correcting our brothers and sisters is be aware of the fact that we too could do the very same thing. Like, It's interesting being in pastoral church planting world, especially over the last year, because there's been just so many pastors who have quote unquote fallen in various ways. And it's, it would be so easy to just kind of like pass the judgment and be like, how could they? I, I will confess, though, I know my soul and I know how could they, right? And so a posture of, of humility <laughs> understands that we're just one step away from the same things, right? Right? Uh, my wife and I were having a conversation on the way in. Uh, she's been reading Gentle and Lowly, a book that's for free back there. A little advertisement there for you. <laughs> but uh, he talks about sin. And we have this idea that sin is sometimes that we, it's like uh, sometimes that we trip over and kind of fall into. Uh, the idea is that we're mostly running a good life. And he says, no, actually, <laughs> we're running mostly a stumbling life. And sometimes by God's grace and mercy, we have like highlights, right? And so we're to be aware of that reality, which then throws us again into the mercy of Jesus. Like how much do we need the mercy of Jesus every single day? Just be honest in an assessment of your own heart and your own life. How much do you need the grace and mercy of Jesus every single day? So we assess ourselves in that way first. See, we we tend to be really good at looking down our noses at others. And we point the proverbial finger (laughs) and give our list of reasons why they, whoever they are, should be farther along and more like us. And Jesus is teaching that this is not the way of Christ. Right? Now what's challenging in this, I think, is that we're often not wrong. I think, I think we, we, we are able to see the wrong in other people's lives. The problem is that we're also not fully right. See? Which is then why Jesus teaches us to take the plank or the log or the two-by-four out of our own eye first. Because when when we take the log out of our own eye first, guess what that does? It clears our vision to be able to then see our brother and sister as they are in Christ, to see them as humans, to see them as image bearers. And then here's the beauty of how this works. How many of you have had like a tiny piece of something stuck in your eye? And you, uh, how does it go for you when you try to get it out yourself? Often you can't. Often, whatever that little thing is that's bugging you, like you, you're like, please come help me get this thing out of my eye. See, so you have this picture of community actually needing and being dependent on one another. We need to assess ourselves. And pull the logs, like the the big giant things, out of our own eyes. But then we also need one another to pull the specks out of each other's eyes. A few other other things to work out here. Uh, I want to be clear because it's easy to forget this. Our role as followers of Jesus is to not be in judgment over the world. We, as followers of Jesus, cannot and should not expect non-followers of Jesus to act like followers of Jesus. Our our judgment, our concern is here. It's it's in the body. It's with one another. It's expected that people who don't love Jesus are not going to live like they love Jesus. They're going to live like they love something else. But it is expected for us who do claim to love Jesus to live as if we love Jesus. And then our role is to be in one another's lives in such a way that we can encourage each other in that direction, in that path. Now here's where we need to be careful. I just want this to be practical for a moment. Uh, There are so many good things for us to participate in. I think one of the ways that we can get off and be too judgmental is by thinking that more people need to do the thing that we like to do the most. So here's just examples. I'm not picking on any one thing in particular. I'm not trying to say, like, I'm not trying to call anything out. I'm just using some examples. So here's, here's how things have been going recently for us in Taproot Church. Valley House. Valley House is a really good thing for us to pour time and attention and money into. It's really good. We want to serve Valley House because we want to serve the poor and marginalized in our city, right? Uh, we also don't want to serve the refugees because that also is a poor and marginalized community. They need help. The refugee center needs a lot of help. Uh, there's more refugees now coming back into our city. That's an area of service that we can offer as followers of Jesus, and that's a good thing for us to be committed to. Uh, Foster care, right? This last Wednesday night, we had a, a, a really great um, introduction for the church of what foster care could look like. And there's such a huge need, huge need. Like there's, there, are, there are hundreds of kids who need to be placed into homes. There's not near enough homes. There's not near enough foster parents. Man, what a great need for us to be able to meet as a church. Um, tonight, there's a Young Life introduction meeting here, uh, a way for for us to engage and interact with uh, students who are in the high schools, students who are far from Jesus, students who have broken homes, so on and so forth. Uh, There's missions, like global missions. Man, we can look at the world, and it's broken, and there's so many destinations, like so many places that we could go to and give of our time and our effort, like we could just sell all of our stuff and move somewhere else. And how many of you are like, whoa. (sighs) That feels overwhelming. Because this is how it works. Like we have all of these good things, good things that are put before us, but we can't do all of them. And and so here's where we need to be careful because our tendency is to, to have our thing. I like, I want, I want my thing. I'm most passionate about Valley House, so I want all of you to serve at Valley House. I'm most passionate about missions, so I want all of you to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm most passionate about the refugees, and so I want all of you to do this. And so all of us need to be doing all the things all the time. And then what we do, what we do is we quickly look down and we say, well, why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? Or don't you know that this is a good thing to do? And you're like, oh, yeah, I know. I'm trying to do a lot of other good things as well. Right? We have very limited capacities. And so I, th- I think that this is in part what Jesus is, is teaching us, is to not just assume uh, first and foremost that we're in the position of the right and that everyone is then going to be like us or have all of the same passions or all of the same time and capacities and so on and so forth as us see there's a, a slowness to judging right? and here's then where this practically works itself out is number 3 Judgment is practiced with wisdom. It's practiced with wisdom. So here Jesus wraps his teaching up with what many scholars declare to be one of Jesus' most difficult one-liners. Verse six. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So, I know this, this verse is on par with verse one as far as being misused and abused or misunderstood. Uh, and for some reason, this verse tends to be ripped out of its immediate context here and is made into a verse that's specifically about evangelism. But it's not. Jesus puts this in the context of how to judge, not evangelize. So it's important for us to understand. Here's, here's Willard. On, on this, he's going to be helpful. He says, quote, The long standard use of this verse is directly opposed to the spirit of Jesus and his teachings. That use suggests that we may have certain wonderful treasures of truth and of service perhaps that we could give to others. Perhaps the treasure is the very gospel itself. But there are some who are not worthy of those treasures. We have to watch for such people. Normally, they are thought of as people who will not accept our treasure or would not use it rightly. They are the pigs or the dogs in question. And we are not to waste our good things on these worthless or evil people. So goes the standard reading of verse six. But it is hard to imagine anything more opposed to the spirit of Jesus than this. Indeed, the very coming of Christ The pearl of God into the world would be a case of pearls before pigs, thus understood. So then, what is Jesus teaching? Well, the issue is not a matter of worthiness, but of helpfulness. And so again, it comes into this way in which we live in one another's, are interacting with one another in day-to-day life. And are we able to correct one another in a way that is helpful and able to be received? In other words, we should not force teaching on People, on brothers or sisters that they aren't ready to fully receive or digest. Instead, we need to learn to patiently walk with them. This is what it is to be disciples who make disciples. We, we, uh, we understand that this is a, a lifelong process, it doesn't happen overnight. We are are in a process together of learning how to follow Jesus. And we all, with humility, need to learn how to walk with each other, how to be patient with each other, how to ask questions, hard questions. We live in a world that is increasingly becoming just out of its mind, and we need to be a safe place that's able to have those difficult out of their mind questions right like wouldn't it be beautiful for us to be a community where like nothing is off limits in regards to well, what about what about Jesus' teaching on sexuality what about Jesus' teachings on alcohol What about Jesus' teachings on money? Hard questions that we tend to try to kind of put into this place of privacy. Jesus teaches us how to live in community and how to patiently walk with one another. One of the ways to understand it is this, is perhaps we all need to mature in being more pastoral. And what I mean is this is Paul in Ephesians 4 Says that God gave gifts to the church: uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Right? And I think, in some way, shape, or form, we all experience each of those to some degree. Okay, and perhaps something that we can all mature in is being more pastoral with one another. Uh, Eugene Peterson—he's become one of my favorites. Uh, he wrote a bunch of books, and he, uh, he wrote one book called The Pastor, and it's his memoir. Highly encourage it. And here, here's what he says about this. It's, it's a season in his life in which he is doing some self-assessment. And he says, quote, Incrementally, without noticing what I was doing, I had been shifting from being a pastor dealing with God in people's lives to treating them as persons dealing with problems in their lives catch the distinction. I was not being their pastor. I could have helped and still been their pastor. But by reducing them to problems to be fixed, I omitted the biggest thing of all in their lives, God and their souls. And the biggest thing in my life, my vocation as pastor, I began to assess what was going on Unaware of what I was doing, I had been making a subtle shift in attitude toward the people to whom I was pastor, and I had been doing it for several months. I was trading in, this is my favorite line, I was trading in the complexities of spiritual growth in congregation for the reduced dimensions of addressing a problem that could be named and understood. And I had been doing this quite a lot here's what this does to me. We tend, again, in lacking wisdom, we tend to look at people and their problems and see them as things to be fixed. If we do that, we're not believing the gospel ourselves. Because what we're saying is that if you would fix your problems, God would love you more. If you, if you get your problems fixed, if you stop doing this, stop doing that, start doing this, and start doing that, God will accept you more. But the gospel is scandalous. Right? The good news of Jesus is that you are accepted in Christ as you are. Right? And we're invited into a relationship with Jesus in which then we progressively mature into new, flourishing humans. And so part of the question that we need to begin asking ourselves is this, is when we look at people, are we quick to see the problems, or do we first notice what God is doing? Do you have the ability to see each and every human being? And let's not not think outside of this room. Let's just think inside of this room. Can you look at each other and see what God is doing? Or do you just see problems that need to be corrected? Because when we are able to see what God is doing, it changes the way that we go about relating with people we understand that God has people in a process just like he has each of us in a process, right? You're in a process and God isn't like, man, I wish you would just hurry up already and get perfect. No, his character is merciful. He's patient. He is steadfast in his love. He is kind. He is quick to forgive transgression and sin. Therefore, we too can be a merciful, patient, slow to judge, quick to see what God is doing, and quick to walk with people kind of people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would shape us into a community that looks more and more like Jesus. I pray that you would enable us to be just aware of your mercy and your patience and your your loving kindness toward us. And that we would then interact with one another in that way and then that we would be thankful when a brother or sister corrects us. That we would learn to receive correction when it is needed, and to receive it not as an assault on us, but as something that's helpful. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to see what God is doing. In his good name we pray, amen.